Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how analog and digital media help us preserve our musical heritage from a special guest, writer, musician, and podcaster, Damon Krakowski. We'll also answer a listener question about why quickly rotating objects like wheels and fans seem to rotate in the opposite direction. Let's satisfy some curiosity. It's time for the second half of our Sunday Sounds miniseries, where writer and musician Damon Krakowski helps us examine the implications of the changing ways that we listen to media in a digital world. He hosted the Ways of Hearing podcast, and now you can pick up the book Ways of Hearing from the MIT Press. This week, Damon and I talk not about what you're hearing, but how audio is stored. I'll kick off this exchange with a pretty outrageous story from the world of physical media. I remember my first professional radio job was at a classical music station, 98.7 WFMT, and we had a lot of old, old reels sitting around. And they wanted to digitize them, they wanted to preserve them. And I remember very distinctly, they would ask me, hey, go in the back and put this reel in a microwave oven Mm. and bake it. Mm-hmm. to make the reel playable. Can you talk about that? Because you mentioned it in the podcast. And, and oh, I, I forgot that that came up in the podcast. Yeah, it was particularly, there was one generation of tape that was particularly susceptible to this. It, well, the problem was that the surface uh, that the tape is coated with, the, the metallic ma- magnetic surface, was separating from the plastic base. And this was a particular problem in a certain era of tape manufacture. So those might not have even been the oldest tapes there, um, but there was definitely a, a couple decades when it was uh, worse than the rest of the time on tape. Anyway, what you, what you were doing was temporarily fusing the um, coating back to the plastic for one play. I don't know if, if you were aware of this, but then you only get one shot mm-hmm. to play it. And sometimes as you play that, after it's been baked, the surface completely splits off the base uh, as it's going through the machine. So you get it like through the playhead and it's just destroyed on the other end of the reel. It can be that extreme. I couldn't remember the exact temperature or time this took, but to give you a rough idea of what this involved, one article on NPR's website says they bake their tapes at 125 degrees Fahrenheit or 51 degrees Celsius for about eight hours I found other articles mentioning slightly higher temperatures from 130 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit for as little as four hours. And a lot of it depends on the humidity, the type of oven, and other factors. Anyway, here's Damon on the implications. You know, analog media is uh, fragile, physically fragile, of course, in one particular way. But again, this is a really interesting conversation to have, um, which is that digital media are also incredibly fragile, right? We've all lost digital information. And it happens when your computer crashes or your phone falls in the toilet or, you know, there's like a million ways that we lose our digital information. You you make a backup and the backup fails. Uh, You forget to make a backup and something happens. Or MySpace, MySpace migrating data. They lost years and years of songs. Oh, yeah, exactly. I just wrote an article just recently about the MySpace thing for Pitchfork. Uh, That was, like what, 53 million songs lost. And this is an irony of the digital environment, which is... The classical music station was asking you to bake the tapes and make these transfers in an effort at archiving, right? So they wanted to digitize it, thinking this will safeguard this fragile physical material, this tape made of plastic and metal, and now we'll have a safe digital copy. But of course, how do you make a safe digital copy? What is that? What format is it in? Will these digital formats be readable 
even a few years from now. I've already lived through so many computer standards for programs and languages that I have files that I can't open anymore. I can't open my email from the much of the 90s. I can't open some of my own writing that I did in a word processing program that wasn't Word. Uh, even some of my Word files I can't open because Word stopped making them compatible with current operating systems. And so digital media is extraordinarily fragile in different ways. And that's one of those things where you can't just think, oh, right, now we're in the digital environment. We no longer have this old ancient problem of how to deal with the physical material. We have this new problem. Um, so sure, magnetic tape was a limited lifespan, but so does digital information, and it may be even more fragile, really. Right, and CDs have the same problem, right? Those only last a certain number. If they get scratched, you can't play them. I'm not sure how durable vinyl is. Doesn't that have a certain amount of plays as well? Well, the sound degrades. This is the thing about analog information. It degrades, but doesn't disappear. You can always get some sound off it. And, you know, they sent, a, they sent an LP out into space on the Voyager to go out beyond the solar system. And the idea was not that alien species would have turntables, but that they would have no problem decoding an LP. <laughs> you know, right. like, and, and really, I think that was a better bet than sending them a Microsoft Word file, you know, because God knows we have enough trouble opening those. Yeah, who knows what version they have. Exactly. <laughs> Damon told us that he hasn't particularly seen any renewed efforts to figure out the best way to archive audio. But we've got some good news if you're still hanging on to those music CDs you picked up starting in the early 1980s. CDs, ironically, although they are digital information, but they're on a physical format that has its problems. But they're pretty solid. And we've had remasters made from, of our, again, our own music, not that old, where the mastering engineer said... Never mind the tape. Give me the CD that we made, because the CD is a, um, a more reliable copy than the master tape. A commercial CD I'm talking about. He says, send me a sealed commercial copy if you still have one, meaning in the shrink wrap, and I'll master it from that. Wow. And we have, we have done reissues based on that as the best available original, so to speak. The original that is actually the same copy that you can find in the thrift store. And broadcasting that information was really not in the interest of the record companies. And of course, Napster figured it out, right? And every pirate in the world figured it out. When you duplicate a CD, you are duplicating the master. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. You can learn a lot more about analog and digital audio from Damon Krakowski's new book, Ways of Hearing. You can find links to the book and to Damon's other work in today's show notes. And you can hear our full, uncut, hour-long conversation with Damon for free on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. Enjoy! Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. And they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, well, better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop, even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. We got a listener question from Ryan from Bangladesh, who asks, 
Why does a fast clockwise rotating object seem to rotate in an anti-clockwise direction and vice versa? Love this question. The thing you're referring to is known as the wagon wheel illusion. You see it a lot in car commercials. A sleek sedan is cruising down the highway, but its wheels look like they're slowly spinning in the wrong direction. There's an easy answer for why this happens on TV. The frame rate doesn't quite match up with the wheel's spin. So like if the camera is filming at 24 frames per second and the spoke of a wheel only completes a rotation 23 times per second, every frame is going to see that spoke a little further back in its rotation as if it's slowly spinning backward. Okay, but why does this happen in real life when you're looking at a wheel with your naked eye? I searched Google Scholar for wagon wheel illusion and it came back with more than 1,700 results. This is such a hot topic for research because the reason it happens says something profound about the way we perceive the world. One research camp says the wagon wheel illusion shows that we process motion the same way a camera does, by sampling it in individual frames. By that explanation, the illusion works in real life for the same reason it does on camera. But later research found that people who watched two wheels spinning at the same rate would sometimes see one wheel switch direction, but not the other. That team says the reason for the illusion is perceptual rivalry, or basically the brain coming up with multiple competing interpretations of the same scene. The same thing happens in the silhouette illusion, where a dancer's spinning silhouette seems to switch directions whenever you want it to. But another study found that when they temporarily reduced activity in people's right parietal lobe, which is responsible for judging when things happen and in what order, those people experience the wagon wheel illusion much less often, which those researchers say throws a wrench in the perceptual rivalry theory. Research into this question is only heating up, so we don't have a solid answer. But for practical purposes, the answer is that it's just an optical illusion. Thanks for your question. Before we wrap up, we want to give a special shout out to Dr. Mary Yancey and Mohammed Shafaz, who are executive producers for today's episode, thanks to their generous support on Patreon. Thank you so much. If you're listening and you want to support Curiosity Daily, then visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.